0: you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we'll be together for a few moments today. Man, this is a great privilege for me and my family. I have my wife and my four kids. We've got two sets of twins. Uh, They're 16 and 13 right over there. Y'all wave. They love it when I do that, by the way. So um, I'm in good shape for the rest of the day. I'll be in a little bit of trouble. But it's a pleasure to be with you for a couple reasons uh, I've said Ashton, he's heard me say this a couple times today. This is a day and a moment where my worlds are colliding a lot. So it's a pleasure to be in DJ's church, Church of the Mill, with Laurel. I know he's not here right now. Uh, But I'm so grateful for this opportunity and for that friendship. Uh, The last four years, having an opportunity to know DJ as he was one of my trustees and the the confidence, the trust, the encouragement that he's given to us means the world to us. And so thank you, Laurel, for letting us be here with you folks, Church of the Mill. That's a privilege in and of itself. Then second of all, it's almost like a little bit of an old school youth group reunion going on right here. So my wife, Tara, we met in youth group at a church called Bailey Baptist Church up in North Carolina. In the youth group, Ashton Emerson was in that youth group, and used to be Amy Blackman. She She's embarrassed right now, too. Sorry about that, Amy. Amy Sarazen, you know her as that. She was in that youth group, and so our worlds are colliding right now. That's kind of cool to have an opportunity to do that. So good to see you folks. Love y'all. Super proud of that guy, Ashton, for what the Lord's done in his life and how he serves you here at Church of the Mill. Well, I could... Keep giving comments like that all day long, but y'all didn't bring me here to do that. So let's get down to business. First Peter chapter three is where we're going to be. If you're there, flip back probably just one page and go to chapter one, and we're going to look at verse one for just a second to set the context. What Peter's going to say to these believers in chapter three, um, and we'll, we're going to talk today about how we live our life out for Jesus Christ in a world that is hostile to us. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 1, listen to this. Here's our context. Peter, that's who's writing, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was one of the 12, to the pilgrims, those are people on a spiritual journey, listen to this, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. And you may pause there for just a moment and say, what is that? What is a dispersion? Well, it's a fancy way of saying people that are dispersed far and wide. Believers in the first century had been flung out all over Palestine and all over the ancient world because of persecution. Remember that the Romans, most powerful force in the world at that time, and the Jewish people, the most dominant religion in that region at the time, both of those groups absolutely despised Christianity and Christians. So if you were a faithful Christian in that culture, in that context, you were persecuted, and as a result, you were flung out everywhere. They scattered everywhere, running for their lives because of the persecution that they were facing. And increasingly more, I'm beginning to think that our situation is gonna resemble that kind of thing, as the world becomes increasingly more hostile to us. So 1 Peter chapter three now, verse number 13. Here's our instructions on how we live. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Don't be afraid of their threats nor be troubled, but instead sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may may be put to shame. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let me pray for us. Our great God in heaven, today we pray for you to speak to us by your word and by your spirit. Today, God, I pray that you'd use this time not just to fill the pulpit in the pastor's absence, but God, I pray that this would be a moment and a time that you would strengthen your people, that you'd bring conviction You'd bring strength. You'd bring inspiration. Lord, you bring whatever it needs to be accomplished in the lives of your people here today. But God, I pray that you'd use this time to make your people strong. Help us, Lord Jesus, now to be the people you've called us to be in this moment, in this darkness. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be true. Help us to be straightforward with who we are and what we are against all odds. And so, Father, to that end, I pray that you bless our time. Use me and your word, I pray now, to accomplish that in your people's hearts. We love you. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. A question for you this morning. What if it would cost us now to be faithful to Jesus Christ? What if it will cost you something significant? What if it will cost you something that matters to you now just to go about being faithful to Jesus? I'm not talking about what if it will cost you if God calls you to be a missionary and you have to answer that call and you got to move to like Africa. Of course, that's pretty straightforward for us. There'd be luxuries and comforts we'd have to lay aside and take up now that calling. I'm not even talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about you staying right here in the Greenville-Spartanburg area of South Carolina and just living like a Christian. That's it. What if it should cost you something to do that in this day and age? Look, I know we're in the Bible Belt. I know this is upstate South Carolina. Beautiful here, by the way. I know it's a place that historically speaking, at least in our lifetime, we've not had to experience that kind of thing because the cultural norms of our world in this part of the country, frankly, have for a long time kinda sorta lined up with basic Christian intuitions and convictions. And as such, you could just kinda go about your Christian life living as a Christian and it really not cost you something. But the culture has shifted, I mean, quickly. And in the last five to seven years, things have shifted in our culture such that now there is an ideology that is totally contrary to the things of God and the call to be holy and righteous that he's placed on us that is constantly being shoved down our throat and you dare not oppose it. Because the forces of this culture will bring themselves to bear on you in ways that, frankly, they haven't as of yet. And so my question for you is, what if it should cost you something to be faithful to Jesus Christ? I suppose that if that should happen to us, it'll be a clarifying moment. Because if all of a sudden it begins to cost me something for following Jesus, I and you will have to choose, probably on a regular basis, what is it that I most want? Do I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ and have him? Or do I want my luxuries and my comforts and my rhythms of life that I've grown up with and I've always held on to, and I just want to keep all those comforts? Chances are you cannot have them both. You'll have to make a choice, and as such, it'll be clarifying. Do I have Christ and not the world, or do I have the world and not Christ? and it will be a clarifying moment for each of us. My question for us today is, what if it should cost us something? I suspect that increasingly more it will, and if it does, you and I will have to make that choice on an increasing basis. Let me talk, I'm gonna show you a couple things in the text here today, but let me, before I do that, let me set this up of how I think our culture has changed. Now, I'll spare a lot of the backstory of this, but essentially, I have, I, I, I'm the president of a school now. We train pastors and missionaries and, and worship leaders and such. I got into all of that before that I was a dean and then before that I was a a professor of philosophy and apologetics and stuff. And I got into all of that stuff because I was doing evangelism. I got into all that stuff because June 16th, 1995, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Ashton was there that very night when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I came from a broken home. My parents split up when I was seven. I got into drugs and alcohol and sleeping around and doing all kinds of things at a very, very young age. By the time I'm a freshman and sophomore in high school, I'm drunk or high. Most days of school, going to school... And I can remember after getting arrested two times my junior year, one time for stealing seven cases of beer out of the back of a grocery store and the second time for smoking pot in my Jeep as I was going mudslinging one night, I came to faith in Jesus June 16, 1995. And when I came to faith, I fell passionately in love with him. And I began sharing the gospel with anybody and everybody that would talk to me. I was just this machine gun of evangelism And as I did that, I encountered all these people that had questions and criticisms. And so I began doing this work called apologetics, which is where we defend the faith. So all that to say, I've been doing apologetics since the very beginning of my faith. So much so that I ended up going to school for a very, very long time, earning lots of different kinds of degrees and end up taking these positions as a professor and publishing books and doing all these things. Professionally now, professionally, I've been a Christian apologist for about 26 years. I've been at it a long time. And in 26 years, I've noticed a pretty radical shift in our culture that comes to bear on you. Even here in South Carolina, comes to bear. Here's the shift that's happened in our culture, just very quickly. It used to be that what they accused us of was irrationality. Meaning, what they would say about us when they would try to mock us or criticize us, they would say that you and I are irrational people for believing the stuff that we believe. Oh, you believe in God? Where's your evidence? You don't have any, you irrational people. You believe in miracles? Where's your evidence? You don't have any, you irrational people. You believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Where's the evidence? You irrational people. And throughout all those kinds of objections, underneath it was this claim that you and I are irrational for believing what we believe. So guys like me and my colleagues, we wrote books and we marshaled evidence because they said we had no evidence. And here's all this evidence. Bam, there it is. The objection today, here's the shift. The objection today is no longer simply that you and I are irrational for believing the stuff that we believe. Listen to this. The objection today is that you and I are bad people for believing the stuff we believe. Christianity's not the answer. Christianity's the problem. Now, they won't say it that way. Here's how they will say it. And you'll hear this one. Who are you to tell people Who they can marry? Who are you to tell people what they can do with their own body? Who are you to tell people what gender they are? Who are you with your binaries to say this or that for a person about their sexuality, about their gender? Hey, it's even worse than that now. I mean, the madness is afoot. Now people no longer debate whether or not they're a boy or a girl ignoring their biology they now debate whether or not they're human or a furry. What's a furry? It's a cat or a dog or some creature like that. Hey, we laugh, and I know it is kind of on one sense, it's about all you can do, right? But on another sense, listen to me, this isn't a joke. This is very real and it's pinching down on your children in the school systems and everything about our culture. And you better not think about ever disagreeing with it because they'll bring every drop of cultural, financial, and potentially legal pressure to bear on us. And you and I, it may cost us something now to be faithful to Jesus and there'll be a clarifying moment. Which do you want? Do you want Christ and not the world? Or do you want the world and all of the pleasures of it and not Christ? The question here is now, how do we live in that world and be faithful to Jesus? Listen to me. I'm not convinced that you and I can win. And by win, I mean we've been in this massive culture war for decades now, and quite frankly, we're not winning. This ideology over here is massively gaining momentum and pressure and mounting against us, and in the world's standards, we might not be able to win, but good news, folks, you and I don't have to win you and i simply have to be faithful that's it that's it so what do you want you want christ and not the world or you want the world and not christ listen first peter to the pilgrims in the dispersion. Remember the Romans and the Jews, they hated Christianity. They wanted to snuff it out. And so they beat on them and they persecute them. And the Christians were flung out far and wide. It cost them something. And to those kinds of people in that kind of context, Peter writes and gives instructions. What do we do now? How do we respond to that? First Peter chapter three, let me show you five things just very quickly from the text that you and I need to remember in a context like this as we try to live faithfully. Number one, remember number one that it is an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. Listen, this is counterintuitive for us now because quite frankly, this is an unintended consequence of living in the Bible Belt where the the convictions, the moral convictions that we hold kind of lined up in the past with our culture so you could go about your Christian life and it didn't really cost you anything. And as such, it now feels and sounds unusual to us to think that we could suffer in any regard whatsoever for being faithful to Jesus. It's a reminder to us that God is not there for us to smooth out all the pathways, to take away all the pressures. Rather, he's there to redeem us and he calls us to follow him. And as it is with Christians today around the world, As it has been with Christians throughout all of history, and as the Bible has made clear again and again from the prophets through the apostles, to stand where Christ calls us to stand, to do what he's called us to do, and to be what he's called us to be might actually cost us something. And if it does, Peter says, You're blessed. Remember that it's an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. Listen to what he says in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, just real clear, you're not suffering because you did something foolish. Look, you shoot yourself in the foot, don't get mad at God. He didn't do that, you did it, knucklehead. Sometimes we suffer because we do foolish things. But no, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, meaning I've, I've stood where Christ called me to stand. I'm saying what he told me to say. I'm affirming what he gave me to affirm. And now I am enduring hardship or affliction or suffering from it. Peter says to us in that case, if you should suffer for that sake, then you are blessed. Here's what Jesus said about it. Matthew chapter 5, remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Oh, and here's one. Blessed are you, he says, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for great is your reward in heaven. Praise God in these moments that, that you're being persecuted this way. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the book of Acts, Peter and John, they go out preaching. They are arrested. They're beaten and they're flogged. And their response, they went away praising God that they had been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. Listen, it is an honor and a privilege to suffer for Jesus Christ. Moses understood this when he left Egypt and identified with the people of God, Hebrews chapter 11. He chose to forego and surpass the luxuries of Egypt to identify with the children of God and to suffer with them because he saw the reward of Jesus Christ is a big paraphrase of that chapter right there. Listen, I know it feels counterintuitive to us and none of us should ever want to face these kinds of things. But if that day comes, in that moment, you'll have a choice you have to make. And as I said, it'll be a very clarifying moment. You can have Christ and not the world or you can have the world And not Christ. Why would we choose this then? Because it's Christ. And my friend, whatever this world may charm you with, he is better. Whatever it may indulge you with, he is better. Whatever it may offer you, or whatever shiny object it may bring in front of you, he is better. And it is an honor to stand with him. And to endure the afflictions that he himself endured. This is what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3. He forsook all of the esteem of this world, counting it as dung, that he may have Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection. Listen to this and the fellowship of his sufferings. We have to remember that should that day come for us, it's an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake, number one. Number two, It is an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. Remember that. Remember number two, to love Jesus more supremely than anything else. Listen, do you know what your job is and my job is? My job, yes, I have a day job. And yes, I have lots of individual responsibilities in that job. But my primary job, the single focus job of my heart and my life is to love God. And the good news is you can love God better than anybody else. Listen to how he says it here in the text. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Verse 15, here's what he says. Here's the love Jesus more supremely than anything else. He says, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now, look, that's a strange statement. What does it mean to sanctify? To sanctify means you set something aside and you treat it special or as holy. For instance, this is a sanctuary. I bet you don't have food fights in here. I bet you don't do all sorts of things in here. Why? Because it is set aside for holy functions. This is a place where you come in and we sing to God. This is a place reserved, set aside to come in and pray to our God. This is a place set aside to come in and open the word and preach about our God. It is a place set aside for holy functions. And so here's the thing when the Bible talks about sanctifying stuff, it typically is talking about things like you and me that aren't yet holy and making them holy. It's about weak things, broken things, sinful things becoming holy and righteous. That's typically how that's used. So, as such, What I would have expected Peter to say is, sanctify yourself unto God because you and I are the kinds of things that need to be made holy. That makes sense. That's not what he said. What he actually said is something quite strange sanctify not me and you for him, but watch this sanctify God. Hold on, wait a minute. Here's why that's strange. God is already holy. There is no movement for God to be made towards holiness, because if that's the case, that means he's not yet holy, he's becoming holy, if he's not yet holy, we don't have a God. Furthermore, if he's already holy, any movement he would make would be a movement away from holiness, which would mean we still don't have a God. God is already holy, he can't be made holy, he's already holy. What in the world, then, Peter, do you mean when you say, sanctify the Lord God in our hearts? Notice where he tells us to do that. He tells us to do that, well, in our hearts. So what does that mean? That's a clue. He's talking about the prize of your heart. He's talking about the love of your soul. He's talking about that thing in your heart and in the core of your being that you love, that you esteem, that you cherish more than anything else. What is that for you, my friend? Is it your job? Is that what's most important to you? Because you can have Christ and not the world, but you might not be able to have the world in Christ. If you love your job, your income, your retirement, your power, your fame, your political party, We can keep going on and on and on. What is that thing that you are first? What is that thing that you esteem first? That's your God. What Peter is saying is, no, 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 no. You sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, meaning you make him and him alone. The primary thing of your life and of your heart that you cherish, that you prize, that you seek after, that you long, that you love. In short, remember, my dear brothers and sisters, to love God more than anything else in this entire world. Treat him as that one thing set aside for everything else, and he and he alone is the Lord and the master and the love of my life. My friends... I don't know what will happen in this world. I don't know how it will impinge upon us. But I would say this, come what may. If you and I remember that it's an honor to stand with him and suffer for his sake, and you and I love him more supremely than anything else, then come what may. Come what may, we will please our Father. Remember that it's an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. Remember, number two, to love Jesus more supremely than anything else in your life. Remember, number three, to preach the gospel to people. Listen to what he says in verse 15. There's a couple points here from verse 15. We've already seen one. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Watch this next one. Here's the next instruction. Preach the gospel. Watch this. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's a word there, defense. It comes from the Greek word apologia or apologia, depending how you want to say it. It's the picture, some of you in this room are lawyers, it's the picture of what a lawyer does in court. A lawyer defends his or her client against the accusations. In this case, Christianity is on trial and we are called to defend it for all these people asking us this question. Now, this is the verse that gives guys like me jobs apologetics We write books and we go to conferences and we do all this stuff. We make these arguments, so on and so forth. That's all well and good. Here's how this verse is sometimes preached to church folks, though. See, you're supposed to be able to do that kind of stuff. You're supposed to be able to give the arguments for God's existence, the evidence for the resurrection, the evidence for miracles and such. I don't think that's what Peter's saying at all to you. Why? Because, number one, none of those whiz-bang arguments existed back then. That can't be what he's saying. And second of all, Peter's a blue-collar fisherman, not an ivory tower philosopher. That can't be what he's saying. So then what is he saying? I think he's saying this, essentially. Listen, sometimes we lose sight over the fact that our faith is strange. I know that sounds bad, but hear me, strange doesn't mean wrong. It's just strange. We believe in a God we haven't seen. We believe in a life after death when none of us have ever experienced it. Huh, that's kind of odd. And no wonder when we preach this to people, they look at us like we're crazy, and they might ask questions like, you believe that stuff? Why do you believe that stuff? And now here's what we're told to do. Explain it to them. That's it. Explain it to them. Defend it. Talk about why you actually believe this. So why is that, my friend? You believe it because you've encountered it. You believe it because you've been transformed by it. In other words, you you have the ability to explain, here's why I believe this stuff. I believe that I'm a sinner just like you. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. And if you turn from your sins and trust in him, he'll forgive you, cleanse you, and save you. And oh, by the way, in my case, this happened to me when I was 18 years old. I was that kid from a broken home. I was that kid who graduated high school with a 1.6 GPA. I was the kid that failed two grades coming along because I couldn't read. I was that kid that had failed at every single thing I'd ever done in my life. And then, when I was 18 years old... Christ himself radically transformed me. And here I sit today as the president of a seminary, and I look back on my life, and I have no explanation for my life aside from Jesus Christ. Is it strange? Yeah. Is it strange? Yeah. But that's what happened. Call it what you want. Think of it what you will. But I'm standing here today as one who has encountered a living God. And I want you to know him too. You see, when I'm doing what I'm called to do here, I think what I'm actually doing is just preaching the gospel to people. Hey, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? You say, I don't know how to do that. Okay. You belong by God's providence to a phenomenal church that would love to teach you how to do that. And I'm betting that y'all have all kinds of discipleship programs that do exactly that. In the meantime, you know there's something else you can do even though you don't feel the ability to do that. Right now, every single one of you, you just invite people to church. 85% of the people that come to Faith in Christ, you know why they come? Because somebody invited them to church. And my dear friend, that's something you can do. You can do that. You can tell your story. Listen, in a world that hates us, one of the most essential things that we have to be doing is simply preaching Jesus to people. And yes, they will snarl at you, and they'll call you all kinds of nasty, filthy names. They may even hiss at you, but that's okay. Because the very thing they're hissing against and snarling at is the cure for their disease. And you preach it, and you proclaim it, And you make Jesus known in a context that hates everything about our faith, and you trust God to do what only God can do. Remember that if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, we're blessed. Remember to love Him more supremely than anything else. Remember to preach the gospel to people. Fourth, real quick, remember to be gentle and respectful. Notice what He says, always be ready to give a defense. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you, watch this, and do that with meekness and fear. Perhaps your translation says gentleness and respect. In short, you know what Peter's telling us to do as we stand where he told us to stand and affirm what he told us to affirm? You know what he's telling us to do now? He's saying be nice. Be sweet. Be gracious. Now look, that's really important for us right now. It's important because if I can just talk honest to the family for a minute, we are really good about taking our cues from modern American politics. And the way we interact with people we disagree with often resembles the way the donkey and the elephant interact with each other. Let me tell you something, no politician No politician dictates to you and me how we're supposed to interact with lost people. Jesus Christ does that. His Word does that. And I don't want to hear another time that being nice or kind or sweet or gracious is somehow compromising Listen, no, it's not, did you know, it's not only possible to do both of these, that is, stand where he told you to stand, affirm what he told you to affirm, be ready to take your lumps for Jesus, remember it's an honor, and also be sweet, respectful, gracious, kind, and all those types of things. Not only is it possible to do both of those things, it is necessary, it is commanded by the word of God itself, and it is modeled in our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So therefore, I'd say this to you. If all you're doing is crossing your theological T's, dotting your theological I's, and parroting the right information, but you're acting like a donkey, you're not following Jesus. That's not Christ. We have to be the people that are different, y'all. It should break our hearts when the ways that we interact with lost people Resemble the world. Listen, we are people of all that need to be most kind, most gracious, most compassionate. So I'd say this to you in a culture that hates you. Be kind, be sweet, be gracious, be respectful. But stand where he's commanded us to stand. Affirm what he gave us to affirm. Preach what he gave us to preach. And in doing that, my dear friends, the Father will be pleased. He'll use us mightily. Let me make one more point to you real quick. Remember that it's an honor to suffer for Jesus' sake. Remember to love him more supremely than anything else. Remember to be a witness and preach the gospel to people. Remember to be kind and respectful. And fifthly, listen, this is important. Remember to keep a clear conscience. Verse 16. Verse 16. As he's commanded us to sanctify the Lord God, be ready to give a defense, do it with meekness and fear. He says now in verse 16, listen to this, having a good conscience. That means there's nothing, no sin I'm keeping in my mind or in my heart that's unrepented of. I'm not walking around with dirty hands and dirty minds and dirty hearts the whole time having a good conscience, so much so, he says, that when they defame you as evildoers, which evidently seems inevitable, when they defame you as evildoers, that those who revile your good conduct in Christ would be ashamed. In other words, people, your character would be so well established as Christ-like that when people say knuckle-headed things about you, everybody just knows, no, because your character shines greater than their character. Keep your conscience clear. The way we do this is constantly, let's keep short lists with God, right? Here's why this is important. The devil knows that the fastest way to shut you down for your service to the Lord Jesus himself, the devil knows the fastest way to shut you down is to get your hands dirty, get your heart dirty, get your mind dirty. And there's the temptation. The question here, my dear friend, is not, if you're going to stumble and fall down. The question is whether or not you're going to get up and how quickly you're going to get up. You're going to stay there? You're going to wallow in it? You're going to keep participating in it? You're going to keep on doing the same kinds of things? You're going to keep letting that pattern of sin just keep growing and going in your life? Or will you get up and run back to the throne of grace? Listen, for too many of us, Yes, we affirm grace, and yes, we affirm mercy, but it's topical and it's superficial, meaning this. We let the grace of Jesus wash over us just enough to clean us up so we can come to church. But deep down in the nooks and crannies of our soul, there is brokenness and there is sin, and there are patterns of things that control us and consume us, and it shuts us down and keeps us impotent for the kingdom of God. And what the scriptures would say to you is, run, run, run to the throne of grace. And when you're there, listen to me, drink deeply from his grace. Let his grace and his mercy and his redemption and his power, let it seep down deep into your soul, into the nooks, into the crannies, and into the shadows, and let it liberate you. Is that not what you actually want anyway? So run. The question's not, are you going to fall down? The question's, are you going to get back up? And how quickly are you going to get up? Are you going to just delay and delay and delay? Or are you going to run back? My friends, I, I don't know what tomorrow holds. And I'm not here to be Johnny Raincloud about bad things coming our way. But I, I don't know if y'all have drawn this conclusion yet. I've pretty much drawn the conclusion tw- The 2020s stink and the horizons well there's any number of ways that we can draw a pretty doom and gloom picture really quickly but I'd say this to us our job is merely to be faithful that's it that's good news for you And that's good news for me because while you may not be as gifted as that person or this person, you may not be as good at this thing as that person is or that thing as those other people are, no one, no one can love Jesus better than you. And no one can be more faithful to Jesus than you. And at the end of the day, my job is just simply to be faithful to him. What does that look like? In a context where the world is beating down our doors and pressures are mounting. Remember that it's an honor to suffer for him if it should come. Remember to love him with all of your heart. That's your primary reason for existing. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? Jesus was asked Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Remember also to preach Jesus to people. They're broken out there. There's nothing out there but brokenness and darkness. So go out into the darkness and preach Jesus to people. Invite them in. Remember to be sweet and gracious the way Jesus himself was. And remember to keep your conscience clean by running back to God every time you fall down. And my friends, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know this. Come what may. The Father will be pleased. And his hand will be on us in mighty ways if we do that. Father, I lift this church to you. It is evident, Lord, that you're doing something here, to which, Lord, thank you. How refreshing, how encouraging. I pray that, Lord, their affections for you would grow every single day. I pray that for the men and women in this room here today that are just kind of nominally playing along and on the fringes of faith and church involvement, God, I pray now grip their hearts and pull them to you, pull them in. And, Lord, may our affections for you grow ever stronger every day. May we love you more supremely than anything else. God, help us to stand where you've called us to stand. Help us to do it with grace, humility, love, and mercy. And Lord, help us to run every single day to you with grace. Lord, use this church even more now. I pray this in Jesus' name.